G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. A conversation over this next hour you'll be able to join into. We're going to be talking about how your church congregation can adapt and thrive after a crisis. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, it is possible you either have remained connected to your local church or you may have, for whatever reason, become disconnected from your local church. Put yourself in the shoes of your local pastor, priest or church leader and imagine the challenges that they've never encountered before. Well, if you're a part of a local church, you are on the team and it'll take a huge effort from every person in your church to move forward. When the COVID-19 crisis hit, church leaders were scrambling to adapt to the fast-changing situation and the change is not over yet. In some states, like Victoria, there is another hard lockdown. In other states, many churches are in recovery mode. There is a new book called The Church Recovery Guide. It outlines the practical steps that churches can take to not only survive, but also to thrive in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis. Our special guest through this next hour is Pastor Carl Vaters. He wrote the book, The Church Recovery Guide, based on his 30 years in church ministry and an ability to think through the issues clearly around big and small churches. And he's joining us from California in the United States. Carl Vaters, a special welcome along. Great to be with you, Neil. Hey, Carl, you're in California. The American situation with coronavirus is somewhat different to what's going on in Australia, but I wonder if you can give us a little update as to how things are going in your neck of the woods in California and broadly across the United States. Give us a little update as to how you're feeling about that and perhaps how churches are coping. Yeah, it's actually very interesting because just as coronavirus is, coronavirus is breaking, I was actually in Brisbane. Um, so I, I kind of caught the early wave of it when you did in Brisbane, then came home to California, and a few weeks later it hit here. Uh, currently in California, we are officially still on lockdown. We were partially out of lockdown. We've gone back into lockdown, which means for our churches, um, we cannot meet inside at all, not even with masks. But thankfully, being in California, we can meet outside with masks. And so that's what we're doing in our congregation. And a lot of local congregations are doing the same thing. We're finding a place out on our patio or out on our lawns. We're having to learn how to take the audio equipment out and live stream so that folks who aren't able to come at all because they're at risk can also watch uh, on live stream. So we are adapting very quickly in ways we never, ever were taught how to do it when we were in seminary or Bible college. Does it depend on the state that you're in in the U.S. as to regulations around how churches can gather? Is uh, California a little bit different to other states around the U.S.? It is. It, it varies state by state. Um, I mean, as you know, the, the U.S. land mass is almost as large as Australia. So we've got a very large land mass and a much uh, heavier population base. 
uh, as well. So states like mine in California that are more highly populated uh, have had a, a lot of lockdown. But now what we're discovering is that some of the less populated states that really didn't think they were going to be impacted because people live at such distances apart, some of them are being very heavily hit right now. It's really surprising them. And I'm talking to a lot of small church pastors in small towns, for instance, who are facing uh, crises and uh, facing an overwhelming situation in some of their towns like they had never expected to face. You know, our conversation today, uh, you know, it's so varied, isn't it? Everyone's church experience, and we'll have listeners to our conversation today, Carl, uh, living in the big cities, in regional centres, in small country towns, and even in really isolated communities. So uh, varies right across the board as to what sort of church our listeners today are a part of. Uh, you are, in fact, renowned to be a small church pastor, I wonder whether you can give us a little background here as to the way that you've focused your ministry over these last 30 years. And, uh, you know, why is it you're called a small church pastor? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Uh, I, I live in Southern California, just eight miles south of Disneyland. So I live in a very, very heavy populated area, and I've been here for the last uh, 27 years. Uh, when I first came, the church was very small, but it's on a main street with tens of thousands of cars driving right past our door every day. So even though the church was in crisis at the time, they'd been through five pastors in 10 years. Um, I really felt like if we got things straightened out that we'd start to grow numerically very quickly. Right at around that time, uh, the church growth movement was really in its early early to mid stages of growth. The, the Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren had just come out and he's here in my county, just you know, a half hour drive away. So I looked at all of that and, and basically the message I got was, if your church is healthy, numerical growth is inevitable. So we aimed for growth through health because we were given that message of inevitability. And what happened with us was there was some growth, there was a lot of health, but we really uh, did not have the kind of numerical growth uh, that seemed to be promised. And I'm going to say seemed to be promised because I'm not going to blame every, anybody else for what happened in our situation. But that was how it appeared to me was if you do these things, it's inevitable you get bigger. And if you're not getting bigger, then you need to take a look and figure out what you must be doing wrong. So that was the message I got and I was proceeding with. Okay. Everyone, it seems, wants to be in a big church, and uh, big is a little bit relative compared to, uh, you know, if you're in a small town, the big church might be a hundred people. Uh, in the big city, a big church might be thousands. Uh, everyone, it seems, wants to be in a big church until there is a major crisis like a pandemic, and no one could have foreseen this coming. What are your thoughts around the idea of big churches? And of course, there are some mega big churches in the US and those mega big churches don't have their doors open right now. And so the small church comes into focus here. What are your thoughts here around uh, the, the idea of a pandemic and crippling the way that some have thought about their church experience? Yeah, it, it, it's, I was going to say amusing, but that's probably an inappropriate term to use when we're describing the results of the pandemic. But it's interesting, let me say it that way, to me, um, almost any movie or television show that, that we've ever seen about the end of the world or a worldwide pandemic, anything from The Matrix to The Terminator to The Walking Dead, what happens is the grid goes down and all you've got left 
is your wits and your crossbow. <laughs> yeah. uh, but w when when this actually happened and we actually have a worldwide pandemic and everything's shut down, everything but the grid has gone down, which is really kind of the opposite to what we expected. So now we cannot actually physically meet in person. And so what's what's the challenge is being faced differently by big churches than by small churches. And I don't know that there's um, there's necessarily a difference according to, to size as far as which one is being successful in it. But what's happening is the big churches, they have the technical expertise. So immediately the first few Sundays, they were able to say, well, just watch our online services. We're already doing it. Now the pastor's just going to come in and do it with nobody in the room. But it's really not that big a different experience because they've been doing it already. Small churches had to adapt immediately. Like our church, for instance, we weren't even doing live streaming our services simply because we had not been able to do it well. And so we would rather not do it at all than to do it poorly. So we had to go from one Sunday where we were not live streaming our services to the next Sunday. The only way we could connect with our people was to live stream our services. And then now that we're able to somewhat come back and we, do, we can do it in an outdoor way, what we're discovering is that smaller churches are adapting to this fairly readily because we're used to the idea of a smaller group and of a much more manageable size as far as pandemic distancing and cleanliness and so on is concerned. And some bigger churches are finding a real challenge because they are not used to the idea of doing uh, a main Sunday service in multiple small venues because they usually have everybody together in a larger venue. So each is facing its own challenges at different times. Carl, your new book is about bouncing back to full health because every church has taken a hit. And, uh, you know, sometimes I talk uh, on segments about how what's happening with business uh, those sorts of issues, but a special focus today on the local church because a lot of our listeners today will be either connected or disconnected. In my introduction, I was saying uh, sometimes if you don't know whether you're connected to your church because maybe you're only partially connected, that might mean you are disconnected. So how do you think about churches that are healthy and have got these real close connections relationally with the people who are a part of the church? Well, that's always been my emphasis. Uh, as we were talking about earlier, my emphasis is on small churches. And I came to it because after trying to grow larger, I discovered we were getting healthier and we were not getting bigger. And so I started looking around and asking myself, is it possible to be a healthy church while remaining small? And the glorious, absolute, you know, loud answer to that is yes, there are hundreds of thousands of congregations all around the world that are small and that are healthy. So what we're, what we're doing now in this situation is, well, our, our, uh, let me speak from my congregation as a for instance. In the last four months, uh, our church has actually grown healthier, stronger, and better in every perceivable way other than our Sunday morning attendance, which in many places is about the only marker that we look at 
to gauge the health or strength of a church is, is Sunday morning growing. We are not, we can't, because we can't physically meet on Sunday morning, but by every other indication, we are growing, we are getting stronger, people are coming to Christ, people are reaching out to each other more. When I talk to our seniors, they tell me, I feel closer to the younger people in our congregation now than I did before the shutdown, because now I'm getting two or three calls a week from younger people and younger couples saying, how are you doing? How can we help? Can we pick up medication for you or food for you? And now we're having five to 10 minute conversations on the phone, whereas before it used to be just kind of a wave in the hallway. So we are being very intentional about making connections with each other in every way that we can, and it's actually strengthening our congregation because we're being intentional about it. Let me ask you this, though, because this affects everyone who's listening into our conversation today. When we talk about those relational connections, sometimes we think that because we're a part of a church it's my connection to the pastor or someone who's on the leadership team. It might be the youth minister. It could be a person who's a children's pastor. But the sort of relational connectedness, uh, which I think I can hear coming through in that last response there, is this idea that the connectedness happens not only between the pastor and the people, but the people and the people. What are your thoughts for what's happened with this new way of doing church and the sort of relationships that need to develop? Yeah, that's a wonderful way of, of, of taking a look at it. Um, for uh, for the last 12 to 15 years, I in, intentionally and consciously began to make a shift from, I, I actually got to the point about 15 years ago, I'd been in the church about 10 to 12 years at that point, and I started using the phrase, I'm tired of the Carl Vader show. Um, because as a smaller congregation, I came into a hurting congregation, and at first I had to do everything because it was just a handful of very tired and discouraged seniors that were there, and they deserved to be able to rest and, and to be served and not to have to run around all the time. Uh, but then we needed to make that shift where it wasn't all dependent on me. And so we really started to teach and to disciple people, especially our younger people, that the church is not like a store where you go and you're served by the clerk behind the counter who gives you a product or a service and then you leave with it. The church is us. We are, we're, we're, none of us are customers. <laughs> we, we are all participants. We are all a part of this process. And if you are sick uh, at home and you get a handful of visits from church members and you don't get a visit from the pastor for whatever reason, we'll still try to visit you. That still is on our, our agenda. But if for some reason we can't, do, you do not look at that as, oh, the church didn't minister to me. Yes, just because the pastor didn't show up doesn't mean the church didn't. If the church members did, that's really where the bulk of that kind of ministry takes place. And it was really a retraining and a rethinking of the way we look at church, quite frankly, to a much more New Testament model where there's less division between clergy and laity, where we're all the church, where we're all ministers, where we're all blessing each other. And even today in our staff meeting, we were having a conversation and asking, is there anybody who hasn't had a visit? And somebody brought up a woman in our church who's a, in a wheelchair. 
And somebody said, yeah, I even called her and she said, no, I don't need any visits. And somebody else said, why? I mean, she's just got to be stuck at home. And um, I actually spoke up because I I'd, I'd talked with this lady recently and I said, no, she's got this whole group of folks in the, in the church and barely a day goes by where one of them doesn't call or come by and have a conversation on the patio while, you know, 20 feet apart on the front lawn. She told me the other day she has never felt more reached out to by her church than she has now. And the actual pastoral staff has not shown up nearly as often for her because she's well taken care of by the other members. So, But it takes some training and rethinking to get us to the point to understand that in a lot of different churches. Helping you make sense of life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Well, 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to join in our conversation today, our special guest is Pastor Carl Vaters. And we're talking about his new book called The Church Recovery Guide. And 1-800-316-316. You can also leave a note on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Carl, let me ask you about pastors and the people because... Right from the start of the crisis, uh, everybody's been saying churches have been scrambling to adapt uh, to the new normal, the change that's come upon them. And we think somehow or other that our pastors have been consumed and absorbed with all of the change that has to happen. But it's not just the pastors, is it? It's the people who have to adjust and change and adapt to the new environment. Uh, What are your thoughts here for the way that ordinary people who might not ever think that they are in some level of leadership or influence in their local church, but the adaptation change is just as important for every single person. What are your thoughts? Yeah, the, the, we have we have never been in a season like this before. Uh, think through your life and see if you can name a major area of your life that has not been significantly impacted by this, from finances to health to relationships, to spirit, to your spirit and your, and your, your church. I mean, every single area has been impacted dramatically by this. So when it first hit from a church standpoint, the, the immediate adaptations needed to be made by the pastors and leaders of the church. We had to figure out how to do it well technically, how to keep connected to our people, how to reassure them. And so the immediate need to respond to was basically technical. How do we make a pivot? to an online church, and then as we start coming back, how do we come slowly back again? We will not come back like flipping a switch. It'll be more like going to physical therapy, uh, you know, and, 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 and getting our muscles back after they've atrophied. But the, the switch right now, what, what I'm recognizing right now, initially everybody asked me about the technical aspects. How do we make the technical shift? That is not the primary conversation right now. Right now, the primary conversation is, why is everybody so mad at everybody else? This is particularly true in the U.S. I don't think it's quite as severe in Australia from what I've been hearing. Um, But nevertheless, there is still this idea of the physical disconnect and the stress of being physically disconnected and the stress of trying to figure out what it is with things changing on a regular basis has really traumatized us. And I'm, I was actually talking the other day to a friend of mine who has her PhD in neurobiology. So her PhD is in the physicality of the brain, how your brain physically functions. And she told me something amazing. She says, 
uh, she said uh, to me as a pastor, she said, Carl, when people are under trauma, and right now everybody's under some degree of trauma, when people are under trauma, they can't hear explanations. Wow. And it made me pause because that's what I was trained to do. <laughs> mm -hmm was, let me explain this to you, let me fix it to you by saying, here's what's going on here. She said, people in trauma can't hear explanations. When you're in trauma, the the act, the act activity, the emotion and action parts of your brain light up like crazy, and the logic part of your brain shuts down. And so, it, speaking to congregation members, I think it's helpful for us to understand that. We are dealing with levels of trauma that we've never experienced before. It is long-term and and mid-range. It's not like a car accident that happens immediately and it's over right away, but it's long-term, so it's subtle. It's the frog in the kettle that just continues to just weigh on us. And after a while, we don't realize how traumatized we've become by the physical separation, by the fear of, of medical problems, by our, our agreement or disagreement with the decisions being made by our government. And all of this has put us in a place of trauma and everybody responds to trauma in different ways. So a lot of what we need to recognize is some, sometimes what, what you're hearing from someone else isn't necessarily a statement of their value system. It's a statement of their, it, it's about their emotional state and the trauma that they're going through right now. And trying to argue them over to your side isn't going to work when you're talking to someone who's experiencing trauma. Wow. Trauma, the idea of shock and uh, revealing itself sometimes in anger. And I imagine the idea of blaming someone uh, when things don't go the way you thought they should go, the idea of criticisms that might emerge here. I wonder if you can't explain to people in church life uh, that those things are happening and how you get through that, what you do to demonstrate that. Is that uh, because uh, if you can't, if, if people are, are deaf to the explanation, as you say, then how do you communicate, Carl? Yeah, well, that's the question I asked of my friend who's a neurobiologist. Okay. And and yeah, and her response was, uh, when people are in trauma, they need familiar settings and familiar rituals. And the challenge that we've got now is we can't go back to our familiar settings to experience our familiar rituals. So we need to approximate those as close as we can uh, it, whether it's in an online situation or just simply picking up your phone and calling someone so that they hear your voice. Uh, the challenge for pastors right now, so whether you are a pastor or whether you're in a church, here's the part of what your pastor is experiencing right now. For the last 30 to 40 years, almost all of our pastoral training was occurring during uh, what has been in America and Australia and in the British Islands and so on, uh, some of the most consistently stable times in human history. When you're in the middle of it, you don't recognize it. You look around, you see the problems all the time. But if you compare what Australia and the U.S., the British Islands and a few other places around the world have experienced over the last 34 years, 30 to 40 years, it has been so prosperous and so stable uh, it's it, it simply no other time in history has compared to it. Because of the stability, it's produced a lethargy and a laziness in some of our churches. So for the last 34 years, your pastor was taught how to bring change to a church that's grown static and tired. Mm -hmm. Now, 
that things are not exactly or we have to shift gears I make in my book is when times are normal leaders inspire change when times are disruptive leaders provide stability so we've been trained how to provide change during stable times and now we're having to pivot our leadership style 180 degrees to provide comfort during disruptive times and not every pastor is uh, able to make that at the same pace or with the same expertise because they too are under trauma and they too are experiencing changes that they've never experienced before. But my advice to the average pastor and the average church member is don't look for new ways to cause disruption and change. Look for ways to bring about consistency and stability in, in as many ways as we possibly can. That's what our bodies and our emotions need right now. Well, we've felt safe. Uh, we've become lethargic. Leaders at this time need to adapt to provide a level of stability in the change. And this, I imagine, is one of the advantages that happens in a small church where you can actually have that personal interaction where you can, in fact, look for that stability. Uh, that's an advantage here for the small church? I believe so. Um, in, in, in switching from talking to the average church member now to talking to the average small church pastor again, uh, again, immediately when this hit, everybody was talking about technically, how do we get ourselves online for Sunday? And our church did the same thing. In the first few weeks, we were consumed with that. But then very quickly, I started telling my pastor friends and those that I write to and talk to, we now need to shift. If your congregation can see you clearly and can hear you clearly on Sunday morning, stop working on the technical aspects of Sunday morning. Spend your week pastoring by picking up your phone and using the stupid part of your smartphone, which is the actual phone part. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've got our smartphones that can do all kinds of things. We forget it's still a phone and actually pick it up and actually call the people in a large church People go and they don't ever expect that the pastor speaking on Sunday morning will ever know their name if they're in a church of thousands and thousands of people. That's not a problem. That's just a different dynamic. But in a small congregation where the pastor and the people know each other by history and by name and by common experiences, when this is over, what people will remember and will be blessed by will be that occasional five-minute phone call from their pastor, not how well the pastor framed the video shot on a Sunday morning. Wow, and I think probably an advantage too, if you've got the pastor who's making that five-minute call, if you don't keep them engaged for the next hour, because you may actually be slowing down the process of how your church will be healthy and how your church might emerge through the crisis. So uh, treat your pastor well. Don't hold him on the phone too long. <laughs> hey, we'll come yes. back and... Our special guest this hour is Pastor Carl Vaters. He wrote the book, The Church Recovery Guide, based on his 30 years in ministry. He's on the line with us from California in the U.S. Carl, as we continue on here, I want to get into some good thoughts with you around our churches and how people are adapting. But let's just reflect on a thought or two from listeners where... On the poll that I'm running today, our Facebook poll, asking the question, which churches do you think will recover fastest from the COVID-19 lockdowns, big churches or small churches? Well, only 12% are saying big churches, 
88% are saying small churches. Now, that may be obvious for some, but let me just reflect on a comment or two from listeners. Uh, Kathy uh, says the church is the body of Christ, not a building big or small. Uh, and then Adam says, I have to say neither. Now, too many churches are too scared and obviously driven by the fear of the left-winged media. I wonder if we could pick up on that for a few moments. Uh, are we, in fact, driven by some levels of fear about church and gathering and adapting to new situations? So what are your thoughts for how things are going in the U.S. and what your thoughts might be for Australia? Well, there's there's no question that fear is a part of this. When you face something brand new, there's always some fear involved in it. And when that thing that's brand new is something as dangerous as this pandemic, uh, fear is is there, and I think certain amounts of fear are appropriate. Uh, a fear brings uh, a caution. Uh, you know, there's the old saying, you can't have courage unless you're afraid. If you act uh, courageously, but you didn't know there was a problem, that's not courage. That may be stupidity or ignorance. But if you know there's a dangerous enemy and you're afraid and you proceed anyway, that's actually courage. So I, I don't think that fear uh, on its own is necessarily a negative. However, we obviously cannot be led by a spirit of fear that is unscriptural and unbiblical and unhealthy emotionally and spiritually. So certainly fear is a part of what's happening here. Um, but in in the congregations that I'm talking to and the pastors that I'm spending time with and uh, and communicating with, I'm not sensing uh, as much fear as I am sensing, um, uh, well, confusion, frustration. You know, trying to trying to learn that it's it's a big learning curve, and what, sometimes what comes across as fear is simply um, trying to figure things out, ignorance. I just don't know what to do. And so we can sometimes look like, you know, the deer frozen in the headlights when, in fact, uh, we're not afraid. We're just simply we're not moving because we don't know what the wisest next step is. And we may just be waiting to get some clarity, get a little more information so we can get a little clearer understanding. So, yes, I think fear is definitely there. I think it's a part of it. We cannot be ruled by our fear. Uh, but don't interpret everybody's uh, everybody else's behavior that's different from yours as necessarily fear-based because it isn't necessarily so. Angela says, big doesn't always mean more. Small churches can be that much more faithful in giving and tithing. Now, it's interesting uh, that uh, there's a reference there to giving and tithing. Uh, for some people thinking, well, when my life is going good, I just feel like I'm going to church because they want my tithe. They want me to give to the work of the local church to support the pastor. Well, of course, church life is a whole lot more than that. But what are your thoughts here for Angela and uh, and her uh, her uh, suggestion there for me the the issue I always like to phrase it as an issue not of giving but of generosity um, you can give without being generous but you can't be generous without giving G generosity is bigger than giving generosity goes to y your heart and not just simply your resources so I think it really has to be about generosity and if the church is being generous then it will attract generous people so, for instance, when we talk about my book, Helping Churches Thrive, what, what I don't, I, I do not mean by that, that the church itself uh, will be like the repository for all of these blessings. Our churches right now need to behave like the Red Cross during an emergency crisis. 
when there's an emergency, a disaster that happens somewhere and people donate to the Red Cross, it's not because they want the Red Cross to be strong. It's because they know that the Red Cross will use those resources to reach people who are in crisis. So it's they're seen as a pipeline. And that's what makes the Red Cross thrive during an emergency. Our churches if we have not been doing so yet, need to pivot towards that. It's not merely about the survival of our congregations. A thriving congregation right now will not just thrive or get bigger or have more money in the offering. A thriving congregation right now will be a, a blessing to the community around them, will be a, a place of resource that people will go to, will be a place that people see uh, a, a sense of steadiness and consistency and, and, and emotional and spiritual health, a place that they want to go to to receive those kinds of blessings. Our thriving is directly connected to how well we are blessing and helping the people around us right now. That's what it's really all about. Wow. Let's spend a moment just unpacking that a little more when you say church needs to be a little like the Red Cross. And sometimes people think of the church and the work of the church as being Red Cross to the people within the church. But when we look outside of our church into a community that is hurting unbelievably because of the COVID-19 restrictions, especially in some states around our nation here in Australia, the church, when it sees itself looking outside of its four walls or outside of its community of gathering uh, to see what sort of opportunities might be there in the broader community. How do you describe what has happened by way of the opportunity that COVID presents if the church gets its act together and treats these things in a right way before God? I, I think this has has the chance to really... Uh is perceived in an awful lot of communities. I think it's interesting, both you and I use the phrase similar to the church needs to be like the Red Cross. But if you take a look at the name Red Cross, where do you think they got their name from? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right? It, it, the, the Red Cross was like the church. The Red Cross took their lead from the church. I, I don't know their background thoroughly, but that word cross is not in there by mistake. It came out of a church environment. And so, you know, we're, we're basically relearning what the church is supposed to have been about all along and reaching out to our communities. I'm um, I'm very cautious about using phrases like, uh, let's use this pandemic as an opportunity. And you didn't use that phrase, and I'm not putting that on you. I'm just always cautious about using it because I've heard it used by others in an almost... Uh, uh, and, a, and almost almost a callous and, and taking advantage way. Hey, don't let a good crisis go to waste kind of a thing. Like you can see them scheming behind it. But it, we, one, we need to be learning from this. And two, we need to be stepping up and seeing uh, this, uh, not just simply how how is my church going to survive through this, but if all my church does is survive through this and we don't reach our community, I really have to ask them, why is my church surviving? What is my church surviving for? If we're not going to be reaching our communities now, if we're not going to be providing resources and blessings for them now, then when? This is the opportunity because people are being affected on every level of their lives, financially, emotionally, spiritually, family, racially, you name the, the major life issue, they're being hit with it right now. And the church is the only place on earth that provides answers in every single one of those areas. I guess we need to be past that idea that the pastor is the person who provides the pastoral care because one person on their own, and uh, you know, some churches have various leaders, of course, in leadership roles, but those few in church life 
who uh, might be in charge of the pastoral care. The pastoral care has to be shared across a whole congregation here. I remember in my own local church, the idea early on that said, uh, you know, pastoral care has to be the responsibility of everybody in church life. Uh, Getting people to appreciate what the church is and how it can be mobilised is a significant challenge in itself. What are your thoughts here for, for churches having an appreciation that everybody has a role to play? Yes. When I was growing up, I'm third generation pastor, so I've spent my entire life in churches. When I was growing up, one of the popular phrases was every member a minister. And I I think whether we bring back that phrasing or not doesn't matter to me, but I think that concept needs to be rebirthed in us again, that uh, we are not called to come and sit and consume a Sunday morning religious show. That is not what the church is, that's, that's not what Jesus came to do. Now, I have no problem with churches doing beautiful music on Sunday morning and making sure that, you know, things are done well and with excellence. I've got no problem with big churches or small churches, and I think everything ought to be done with excellence. But the point of the Sunday morning service should not be so that we're putting on a great show for people sitting and passively watching. The point of the Sunday service, whether it's online now or in person, should be to equip and to mobilize disciples who then go out and have an influence on their community for the gospel of Jesus. That's the end game. It's not about how many people come into the building. It's about how they go out to impact their community. And I imagine here that if you think of the ministry role of the church as not just about reaching out to the lost, but to ministering or serving a community that is in at this point, uh, when there's a crisis that's going on in the nation, that's going on in the world, people are in fact grieving. And uh, people grieve in all sorts of different ways. But is there a sense here, Carl, that if you see people who are either within your church or outside of your church in your community as being at a stage of grief, uh, you'll have some motivation for uh, what you carry, this hope that you have in Christ, to be able to speak into or be a part of their situation. What are your thoughts about people being in grief at a time of crisis? Grief is a complicated thing, and... um, uh, it's been, I think it was 1969 that uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote the book on death and dying. And in it, she outlined what she calls the five stages of grief. And when you read it, what you recognize is, oh, this is just identifying the way God built us emotionally. <laughs> That's all it is. It's just an identification of who we are. And everybody, whether you've heard of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's name or not, or the book or anything, you're aware of the stages of grief. Because if you've ever said or heard the phrase, you're in denial, that's from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. What, what, what she outlined for us was that when, we, when, when people go through trauma, they work their way from that trauma back to health again by going through five stages that can be delineated even though there aren't clear walls between them. And it's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. What we have right now is a very interesting situation uh, that's unique in my lifetime. Uh, in my lifetime, there have been big events that have happened. Uh, local well, when, when we were in Australia at the beginning of this year, you were just coming out of the massive fires that devastated uh, your, your entire island, right? They're just all over the place. When we were about to head there, I had friends going, why are you going there? Isn't the island on fire? It's like, <laughs> well, there's a lot of it, but there are, you know, there are, there are cool spots. We'll be, we'll be okay. 
but 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 you went from that trauma immediately into the trauma of the pandemic and and we uh, here in the US we didn't have the fires but we had we had the trauma of the pandemic and then of the racial issues and then the the uh, sometimes violent response uh, to the racial issues and then all of the politics that go along with it. So it hasn't been a singular trauma that we all get to work through the stages of grief together. In my lifetime, for instance, the closest big event that to this that I experienced was uh, after the uh, you know September 11th, 2001, and the terrorist attacks uh, here in the U.S. Uh, it was horrific, but it was a singular event. And we all kind of worked through the stages of grief together, and it really united us in some interesting ways. Did we respond perfectly to it? Not by a long shot. But there was a sense of unity, and there was a progression through the stages of grief when we came out of it, because it was a singular event. What's happening now is you've got multiple traumatic events happening one after another, and we're uncertain about what's going to hit us next. So somebody may be on stage three of coming out of the original trauma, but they're only on stage two of coming out of the trauma that happened after that. And they're just at the beginning stage of a trauma that just hit them now. And all of these happening all at once. And it's really, really very confusing. And, And then as I've been talking to people, I've also noticed this, the five stages of grief aren't just a way that we work through it. But I look at them now and I've considered some people, most people, in fact, will pick one of those five stages of grief and they'll do it subconsciously, but it'll be kind of a campsite where they just simply stay. So, for instance, instead of working through from, uh, you know, denial to anger to bargaining to depression to acceptance, some people are simply angry. Angrier as how they're going to respond to everything. That's their default. That's their trigger. And there's plenty to be angry about. Other people, they tend to get depressed. They pull into themselves. They eat too much. They can't get out of the house. And their trigger is depression. Somebody else, their trigger is bargaining. These are the fixers among you. Oh, we can fix this. We can figure it out. We'll get it done. These are probably people that are burning themselves out trying to fix everything. And if you look at those five different stages, you'll see people in your life that are locked into and camped out on on one of those stages. And what what happens is it triggers them. So you've got this trigger that happens. And then you've got uh, this idea that, okay, I'm triggered emotionally by this. And and have you noticed that different things trigger different people? Mm, Yep. So I'm like here in the US right now, there's this big whether we should wear masks or not wear masks. My understanding is that in Australia, there's a, a little more agreement in that. And so you're actually getting through it pretty well. Here, it's a big, big dispute. And it's triggering people who are, you know, there's a meltdown in the middle of a store because somebody didn't wear a mask or a meltdown in the middle of the store because somebody did wear a mask. The mask or the no mask does not state about their value system, it, it it speaks to their emotional state. And we have to make the difference between what triggers somebody emotionally and what really is a value to them. And they're different things. And so if we recognize that someone has been triggered in a certain way, and whether it's masks or all sorts of other things that are around the crisis of coronavirus, if we can recognize that someone is triggered and they are having a reaction that in itself then gives us some insight into how we ought to respond as believers. Uh, is So there are, there are good things here, because if you see the bad triggers happening in people, 
either in church or outside of our church, then that actually can give us a sign or a signal or a trigger that uh, we might need to react in a certain way. And uh, and so what are your thoughts about how Christian believers and leaders uh, react when they see those triggers happening? And that's triggers caused by these levels of grief. That's a great question. Well, like Jesus said, respond to anger with anger. <laughs> well, Sorry, that's my American sense of humor there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we get it. Right? But, but that's that's how we do it, right? We see anger in somebody else, and so it stirs up anger in us. But as as Christians, and especially as we mature in the faith, we need to understand there's a reason why Jesus said to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, uh, to to respond in lo- you know love your enemies. Uh, we should we, we should be training our hearts and our minds and our behaviors to become more Christ-like, so that starting with our own selves. If, for instance, I recognize my trigger tends to be depression. Of those five, I tend to go into depression. I tend to just lock down. Uh, I, I could sit in the house forever and eat too much, and I've got to realize, okay, I need to. Uh, depend on the goodness of God here. I need to get out and become active, and that becoming active and doing uh, and blessing somebody else is the trigger that gets me out of my trigger of depression. Okay. So I recognize that about myself. So if we can start by recognizing, here's the negative trigger that hurts me, and then we all have a positive trigger that helps pull us out of that. And if you don't know what that is, ask the people closest to you. They'll probably tell you real quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And but that but that can be a real blessing. There are the negative triggers that push us down, and then there are the positive triggers that pull us out of that. And then if we can recognize that in others as believers in Christ, we can encourage the good out of them rather than simply responding in kind to the negative trigger. Just a few minutes remaining for our conversation, Carl. Let me ask you about. Uh, the person who's listening into us today who feels now detached from their local church because, you know, we went into lockdown, uh, you were able to hear some streaming into your living room on a Sunday morning uh, or either that, uh, you know, or what was being presented from the local church wasn't the sort of quality that really captivated them. So they've become in some way detached. What are your thoughts here for that person who's missing out now on the opportunity to participate on what the local church should be for their community. Any insights here for the person who's disconnected? Yes, for sure. Um, first of all, if you are able to go back, even if it's in a limited way, go back. Uh, our first week, we went. We were three weeks where we didn't have any live services. We did a YouTube premiere, which we recorded on Thursday. And then we had the opportunity to do a Sunday morning where we were, um, we were actually, we were actually physically together. It was outside. It was with masks on. It was six feet apart. And as we were planning it, there was a part of mine, the back of my head, going, "What's even the point? What's the point of? Why not just stay at home? If we got to go, all of these, we got to clean everything up. We got to be six feet apart. We can't go up and hug anybody. We're going to sing through masks. It's going to be depressing." And all I can tell you is from the moment that service began and those first chords of those first songs came out, I and the entire group of people who were there were overwhelmed with the goodness of God and with the opportunity to be together 
in the house of God, even though it wasn't in the way we were used to. This being together with other believers is not secondary and it is not optional. As soon as we are able to do so, and some of you, even if your churches have started again, you are at risk and you can't be there. So this is no shame to you whatsoever. You need to stay safe, stay safe. But if you are physically able to be there and the only thing that's stopping you is that it seems awkward or you don't want to wear a mask, I'm going to just tell you right now, get over it and get to church. If you're able to get there, we need each other in that way. Wow. Okay, our Facebook poll today is overwhelmingly from listeners saying it certainly is the small church that has the capacity to recover fastest from the COVID-19 lockdowns. And I know listeners will be thrilled to hear a segment coming that champions what happens in small churches. And uh, you're the champion of that, Carl, and uh, honour to you uh, for being the small church pastor, but uh, for making yourself available today to share your thoughts and your heart with listeners today, it is just wonderful. I do want listeners to uh, feel as though they uh, they ought to get a, a hold of your book because uh, it's going to have some tremendous insights that are going to uh, be so valuable for small churches here in Australia. The book is called The Church Recovery Guide. It is available from stores like Kurong. Uh, it's available from the publisher, Moody Publishers, in the US. And if you simply uh, were to Google Carl Vaters, K-A-R-L-V-A-T-E-R-S, uh, you'll come across Carl's book. It's called The Church Recovery Guide. There's some other books that Carl's written as well, one called Small Church Essentials, Field-Tested Principles for Leading a Healthy Congregation of Under 250, or The Grasshopper Myth, Big Churches, Small Churches, and The Small Thinking That Divides Us. And I think there's plenty of other writings and articles that you'd be able to access as well. But the one we've been talking about today, The Church Recovery Guide. If you're saying, how do I get all of that encapsulated into one place? Well, get a hold of Carl's book. Carl, just wonderful getting your insights. I want to thank you so much for taking some time to share these thoughts with our listeners today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 